I'm working my way through the uh, Old Testament very slowly. I started at the beginning of the year. I've made it to numbers. All right, I'm doing really, really well. I got all the way through Leviticus. But generally, when it comes to reading the Bible, some of the bits that a lot of us find difficult, there's all sorts of little bits, and you come thinking, oh, I'm not sure about that. But how about long lists of names? Like how, like those son of, son of, father of, father of, yeah, yeah, I agree. Hey, guess what? Eight whole weeks in a long list of names. Matthew chapter one. This is where we're going today. We're going to start Matthew chapter one. We're going to be looking for eight weeks at 17 verses of Matthew chapter one. This is a series I have been eagerly desiring to do and I've been here long enough now to be able to say this is what we're doing tough so Matthew chapter 1 this is the start of the New Testament or okay the kind of uh, this incredible revelation of of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ this amazing gospel and it starts with a huge long list of names. So often when we read the Bible and we get to the, the these names the list of stuff we, we if we're honest we flick, right? Like, oh, good. No, oh, no. Keep going. If we do that, we miss out a whole load of stuff. It ain't there just for some page fillers. So let's have a look. Matthew chapter 1. The book, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy just means Genesis. It means origins. The origin, the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus Christ. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Whenever there's lists of names, it's real kind of a good idea to ask why. Why is this here? Why is the author mentioning these particular names? What's the intention of this author? Who's his audience? Who's he writing to? And Matthew, who wrote this gospel, is writing to a Jewish audience. And he's setting it all up and he's saying, listen, it's all about Jesus. The answer is always, it's all about Jesus. Every single answer that they're being taught in kids out there is, it's Jesus. Every single answer here is, it's Jesus. And Matthew says, it's Jesus. The real king of Israel is Jesus. And so he's writing to his Jewish audience, proving that he's the real king, the true king. And he's also proving this by setting in the context, Jesus in the context of what God has been doing for his people from the earliest of days. These first few verses are all about the theme of fulfillment. God makes all these promises. He promises to Abraham. He says, listen, you, you're from your family, from the seed of your family, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. How's that work out? In Jesus. He says to David, your kingdom and your throne shall be established forever. How does that work out? In Jesus. So Matthew is saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram and Ram the father of Abimidad and Abimidad the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon and Salmon the fish the father of Boaz by Rahab just seeing if you're awake and Boaz the father of Obed by what a name by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David the king just a quick point here I'm going to have to break this up so you don't zone out I'll come back when he starts talking about something other than names when it says father of lots of people use these lists people who think they're smart because they like watch something on YouTube once read these kind of lists and they go ha ha look at the generations it can't possibly be look if they were father of that there isn't enough people there or that 
Father of in Greek doesn't necessarily mean literal paternity, father of. It just means ancestor of, okay? Oftentimes, sometimes it does mean the literal father. Oftentimes, more often than not, it just means ancestor of. So don't get hung up by that. Let's carry on with the list. Where did we get to? And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. She doesn't even get mentioned by name. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the farmer of father, farmer, the father of Amos. He might have been a farmer. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of that one, Jehoaniah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoniah, the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of... Right, we get to some guys who've never been mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, okay? Straight up. When you're looking at lists of names... Often all these people so far are mentioned somewhere else. Now from, from Ebihud to Jacob, there's no mention of them anywhere else in the Bible. What's that telling us? Well, at its most basic level, lists of names remind us of this incredible truth that God loves people and he knows them by name. God loves you and he knows you by name. Just let that sink in for a moment. There are 7.5-ish billion people on the planet right now and God knows you by name and loves you. Wow. Just let that sink in for a moment. And Ebedid, the father of Elikim, and Elikim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elihud, and Elihud, the father of Elizir, and Elizir, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Wow. This is Jesus's family tree. This is his family tree. This is where he comes from. I don't know whether you've ever looked into doing your family tree. My mum spent some money on it one time. I don't know whether you ever looked at it. I don't know whether you've ever seen this show or you're familiar with the show, um, Who Do You Think You Are? You know, where they get some kind of celebrity and they look through his past or her past and, and they find an element of a, a little bit of scandal somewhere just to keep our interest because if it was like a, not a bit of scandal, it would be a very dull hour's worth of TV. And they often have some kind of scandal, but not like this one. I don't know if you picked up on some of these names. We've got pagan worshippers in here. We've got liars in here. We've got sexual deviants in here. In two weeks' time, we're going to be looking at one of the more interesting stories in the Bible that involves lust and illicit sex and incest and two dead sons and some very weird lessons in birth control. I can't wait. Two weeks' time. I've been looking forward to preaching that one. We've got prostitutes. We've got immigrants. We've got adulterers. We've got murderers. We've got kings. Good ones. Bad ones and very, very, very ugly ones. And of course, by the time we hit Christmas in eight or so weeks' time, we'll look at, get to look at the story of an unwed pregnant teenager. This is a family tree with more than a whiff of scandal about it. I mean, more than a whiff. There is a whole lot going on here. There are women in this family tree. Now, we might think, well, obviously, duh, that's not a big thing. 
Well, actually, if you know anything about ancient Near East culture, having women in your family tree was a huge thing. I mean, obviously, everyone knew they were there, but they didn't get written down. Because in that culture, women were not particularly uh, important status-wise. And yet here, Jesus has five of them in his family tree. That's scandalous in and of itself to the audience who it was being written to. We've got outsiders in this family tree, foreigners, Gentiles, Moabites and Canaanites, those who didn't fit, those who were outside of the, kind of the, the people of God. They're in this family tree. And then we have those who would be considered to be moral, well, let's kind of just say failures, all in this family tree. Why does this New Testament start with this list of names? Well, ultimately, it's because it's revealing something deeply profound about God. You see, of all the images, think about this, of all the images, of all the metaphors that God could have used to describe himself, of which he could have picked anything, he's God, he chooses the image of Father. God is a father and he's adopted us into his family. God's a father and church, therefore, his people is family. So what that means is that in Christ we have brothers and sisters and the Bible uses this language of family a lot. All throughout the Old Testament, families matter. New Testament, families matter. And Jesus, the fulfillment of everything, is introduced to us in what? The context of family. God's a father who adopts us into his family And this list of names shows us the types of folks that he chose to adopt into his family. That he chose. He's not a reluctant father. He's not like, oh man, I really was hoping for something else to come out. And that's the thing that came out. And I'm going to have to work with what I've got. I mean, earthly wise, no father ever actually is going to ever admit that. But there is an, oh, I wish it was a boy. Or I wish it was a girl. Or I wish it was, well, I'm just going to have to make Duke now, I know. I've got three kids. I don't think that about my kids ever. I always think they're amazing and always love them with my whole heart and my whole being. They they are the most... There are moments, right? He chose. He isn't like just putting up with a... Well, that's kind of what I've got to work with. I mean, I'll do the best I can do with a bad lot. No, no, no. He, He chose these folks and he chose you. I saw a brilliant tweet earlier in the year which just sparked me thinking about this whole passage. It was from a guy called Sam Albury who said the, 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 the family Jesus came from, his family tree, the family Jesus came from is a picture of the family he came for. The types of folks that are in that family tree, the family he came from is a picture of the folks he came Four who should make up and will make up and do make up his family. He chose them. He chose you. He picked you out. And the folks that he's chosen in this list, he reveals something else. God's not just a father, but he's a God of grace. He's a God of grace. None of these folks deserved it. And yet he chose them, picked them out. And grace is one of those things. We call this a scandal of grace. Grace is one of those words within Christianese that has lost so much of its real meaning. It's like one of those words that we just chuck out there all the time. It's, to be honest with you, grace has become somewhat kind of almost flat in our thinking. We use grace, we just kind of chuck the word out, say grace before dinner. We, we chuck it out and go, oh, give me grace. We kind of mean leniency. I've done something I shouldn't. Just, oh, give me grace for that. Or we kind of, it's just a word that we throw out there in worship. We've become so familiar with it, so used to it that we've missed the depths 
of the breathtaking, scandalous, outrageous beauty of what grace, true divine grace, God's grace truly is. Sometimes people go further and they say, well, of course, grace actually is, is, means God's unconditional acceptance. And they say things like, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. Whoa, how theologically smart am I? That's what it is. It's God's unconditional acceptance. Even though people haven't met his standards, God still accepts them. Well, that's true. Sort of. Kind of. Nearly right. It is right, but it's not fully right. It's a bit like saying that kind of decaf coffee is real coffee. It, 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 it kind of is, but it ain't really. I mean, like, technically it's coffee, but it isn't really coffee. It isn't, I mean, you can kind of say it is, and if you drink decaf, I'm not trying to offend you. Like, enjoy it. But don't say it's coffee, because it ain't. It doesn't have the same thing. Like, non-alcoholic wine, it's all things. It's true, but it's not really. Grace is way more than just God's unconditional acceptance of people who haven't met his standards. Grace, God's grace, divine grace goes way beyond, okay, I'll accept you. You haven't made the cup, but mm, okay. No, 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 no. God's grace, divine grace is God's relentless and loving pursuit of his enemies who are unthankful, unworthy, and unlovable. It's his relentless pursuit. It's his absolute delight Not just his ability to save sinners, but his absolute delight in rescuing sinners, even the really mucky ones. It's not just he accepts you, it's he pursues you and calls you and rescues you and redeems you and he delights to do it. And so the New Testament starts by looking back into the Old Testament and saying, look at all these people, the not so good, the bad and the very, very ugly. God loved them, redeemed them, rescued them, used them, cleaned them up and brought them astonishingly into his family. And now Jesus has come so that he can do the same to you. So over these next few weeks, we're going to look back at a number of these characters and how God treated them. And we're going to see that the Old Testament is all about the grace of God. See, many people think, you might be one of them, think, that, well, the God of the Old Testament, he's kind of like the angry God. He's like the, the wrathful, vengeful God. He's the one who, who just shouts a lot. And he's a bit like an angry toddler in terms of he decides what he likes and what he doesn't like. And it seems a little bit arbitrary. And some things just seem a little bit harsh. And other things seem, well, okay, I kind of understand that. But he, that's angry God. God of New Testament, he's like the loveling one. He's the graceful one. And he's the dude I like. This one, not so, it's one and the same. Does not change. And you can't understand grace fully apart from the Old Testament. And you can't understand the Old Testament without understanding grace. And so if you read the Old Testament and you don't get undone by the scandal of grace that you read throughout it on display, you need to go back and reread it again and again. And if you read the Old Testament and you only see the wrath and the judgment of God, then you've missed the best part. You've missed the whole point. You've missed the main message. Grace is the spine that holds the whole of the Old Testament together. You look at any story, and we're going to look at a few over these next few weeks, you will find a story of God's relentless pursuit of his rebellious children. And the reason that, to be honest with you, the reason that we so often miss the point when we read the Old Testament, the reason why we so often struggle when we read the Old Testament is that we kind of read it wrongly. Now, it's not our fault. It's not your fault. I'm not blaming anybody. It's just that from an early age, we've been taught to read it in a certain way. 
you think about our culture for a moment, everything in our culture, literally everything from the youngest age all the way through is all about performance, your performance. Your performance matters. How good you are matters. Think about it. You little kids, you get little sticker charts. Behave well, you get a sticker. Don't behave well, you get it taken off. Big consequence when you're four years old. That's a big deal if the sticker gets removed. But you taught from an early age. Performance matters. Go to school. Do well, you get good grades and good reports. Don't, you're going to not get them. Go to uni. Do well, work hard. You're going to get a good degree. Don't Well, you ain't, and you're going to be in loads of grand worth of debt for no reason whatsoever. Go to work, you work really hard, and you'll get promotion, and all the other things will come. You do absolutely nothing, and you don't work really hard, and it won't work out. Everything in our culture, everything is all performance matters. Your performance matters. And if you think it don't, then go to work tomorrow and do nothing. Like, just try it. I mean, don't try it for too long, but just try it. And then Tuesday, do the same thing. Wednesday, the same thing. See how long you last. Your performance matters. That's what everything in our culture tells us the whole time. And because we're conditioned this way, we read the Old Testament this way as well. We read it as if it's a set of moral instructions or moral examples to live by. And so we need to be like Abraham and have faith like him. Or we need to learn to wrestle like like Jacob or be a leader like Moses or Joshua or David. Or we should fight like Samson or we should flee like uh, Joseph or we should stand up for God like Esther. Now listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying those things are not good things to do. Like they really are. If you're faced with temptation, don't muck around, run away from it. Flee like Joseph did, run away. That's a very good lesson, a very good principle. If you're faced with, with pressure at work this week, cultural pressure to, to kind of conform to the world's things against what God says, then stand firm like Daniel. That is a very good thing to do. If you're faced with challenges, then have faith like Abraham. Hold on to God like Jacob if life is falling apart. All good things. But principally, if we read the Old Testament like moral instruction, then we're going to get ourselves into a whole load of problems. Firstly, because reading it this way, it puts the emphasis all on us and what we do. It makes us the main character in the stories. And as a culture, we suffer from this greatly. I mean, what is what are the overriding... There are loads of things wrong with our culture. I love it in many ways, but lots of things wrong with it. But what are the overriding problems in our culture? Rampant individualism. Rampant consumerism. Rampant materialism. It's all about me and what I get out of it. Everything is all about me. The world revolves around me. And when we, because we condition to think like that, we think we're the main point of the story and it causes us all sorts of damage. But the Old Testament is not about us. It's about God. Yes, as humans, we have a part to play. We're involved in the story, but very much as secondary characters. He's the main character. It's his story. It's all about him. The Old Testament, the whole Bible, in fact, is first and foremost a story about God, not about mankind. So if we get ourselves, we read it that way round, they're in trouble. But secondly, we read it that way round as moral examples, we get in trouble anyway. Because most of the Old Testament people, characters, they are not good examples to follow. I mean, take Abraham for a moment. This dude gets mentioned a lot in the Bible. Like over 300 times, 11 of the New Testament books all mention him. And everyone's like, Abraham, whoa, what a dude. He's amazing, man of faith. Yeah, be like him. Yeah, well, he was a good guy. He had one or two issues. Like he was a moon worshiper. Like a pagan idol worshiper who had a bit of a lying problem. 
He was a sinful man who needed a saviour. And I don't want to steal too much from next week because we'll take a look at him. But he actually twice, twice tried to give away his own wife to avoid conflict. Now, if you're a wife today, I'm guessing that's twice too often. Your husband does that. I mean, you can just imagine the first time, but honey, I'm, I'm, they're going to beat me up. I'm really, really sorry. Like, I just thought it'd be easier if you kind of, if I just pretended, and she's like, okay, don't ever do that again. And then he does it again. <laughs> that ain't good. I mean, it kind of shows us that Abraham wasn't always a man of faith. He was sometimes a man of cowardice. And even though he was a man who was magnificently used by God, which he was, he's a man who continually needed God in his life, and so do we. So are all the others. Jacob cheated. Moses murdered. So did David. He committed adultery as well. Esther didn't even mention God once and broke a whole load of commandments along the way. Guys like Samson, well, they were just like, oh, lust-fueled porn addicts. I mean, they, like, honestly, it was just, that was it. That was his overwhelming thing that drove him. Messed up. If we followed our Old Testament heroes and did what they did, we'd end up in prison. And yet, their stories are recorded in the pages of Scripture because they are trophies of grace, God's grace. And because principally the Bible is not about us, it's about God. And so instead of reading it morally, we need to read it theologically. And so as we read the stories, yet we need to gather together the good ideas of do that and don't do that. And that's a good idea. But more than anything, we need to be thinking, what does this teach me about God? What's God doing here? How is he revealing himself? How does this fit with what I know about God, that he is a father who loves his children? This last week, Han's been away, so it's been me and the kids by ourselves. Well, two-thirds of the kids. One of them went somewhere else. And um, I knew where he went. I didn't lose him. It's fine. And I also fed them. Don't worry, like those of you who've been here the last few weeks. But I took the opportunity to include my eldest two on, uh, in my Old Testament Bible reading, which was fun. So we get to Numbers 15, and there's a bit in Numbers 15 where God decides that the guy who's picking up sticks on the Sabbath is going to be put to get death. And I'm like, I read this, and my eldest, who's six, he's like, for picking up sticks? Mm-hmm. What? So yeah, go and tidy your room. <laughs> Ran. He came back a few minutes later and went, didn't he get in trouble for picking stuff up? Shouldn't I not leave this? <laughs> no. What, I read enough, nothing. what on earth does this teach me about God? It's teaching me in a whole seriousness. The holiness of God. The otherness of God. The seriousness of sin. The seriousness of breaking the commands of God. I ain't God, he is. He gets to decide I don't. The weight of that. We ain't mucking around here. We come before a holy God who treats his holiness and his otherness with seriousness. So should we. And then it moves me to go, but wow, Jesus. Wow, Jesus. I cannot stand before a holy God and yet you have made a way for me. Wow. It undoes me again and again and again. You see, the Old Testament reveals a God of grace. 
Matthew 1 reveals that this God of grace is a father who delights in adding into his family people from every sort of background, no matter how messed up they are. See, whoever you are today, however you walked in here today, there is room for you in this family. See, Matthew starts his gospel here because ultimately the Bible is about God and his people. We're not just individuals. We're part of a lineage and a history and a family. This is our story. We've been introduced and brought into this wonderful story. It stretches out long before we arrived and it'll stretch out long after we leave. And there's room for you no matter what your background because every single one of us has a sinful pedigree in our past. So if you come this morning, if you come from a family that is godly, a godly family, your family tree is is full of godly men and women who are Christians and still are. You were born into this, you were raised into this, you've never really deviated from this path. If that's you, wonderful. Do not despise it. Do not despise it. It can be so easy to think, well, my, my testimony, my, my story is so dull and, and, and boring, really. I'll, I'll just spice it up a little bit. So, like, I mean, I was born in a Christian family, but from the ages of kind of, like, I don't know, six to nine, I ran a little bit of a criminal enterprise, like taking the money, dinner money off my school kids and running the, the supply of class A drugs for my teachers. You know, I was only six. Don't do it! Now, obviously, no one says that, but we are, you know, well, I've done this. Why? Because we somehow think that having this heritage from the Lord is somehow, oh, that's a bit. No, it's amazing. It's absolutely wonderful. You were born into a godly family. Parents and grandparents and all the rest. Praise Jesus. That's God's faithfulness to you and your family and your faithfulness back again. Don't despise it. It's so wonderful. It's why I earnestly desire for my kids. If that's you, that is God's grace to you. Do not ever despise it. Don't break the chain of God's faithfulness. Carry it and pass it on to the next generation. You're like Mary and Joseph. They would, I mean, they had some sin issues. Of course they did. Everyone does. But essentially they came from a godly, devout, kind of humble sort of background and family and they carried it and they passed it on and they taught their children and went and went and went. Do the same thing. Don't despise it. And if you come from the other end of the scale... Like you, you have a family or no family at all that, is, that really is at that other end that's sinful and wicked and, and kind of rebellious and discouraging and a shameful family. So did Jesus. It didn't destroy him and it doesn't need to destroy you either. You don't need to be ashamed. You just need to be honest about it. You don't need to be embarrassed about it and try and cover it up. The Bible is incredibly honest about everything and it invites you to be honest as well so that you can see that the sin of your family or yourself or whatever it is and know that you need a savior. You need to be born again, adopted into the family of God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, your big brother. And now you have a new family called the church and they're gonna help you and you can and help them and together we grow to be more like him see there's room for everyone no matter what your background and whatever your background is there's one thing that we all need which is the grace of God none of us earned it it was not our performance that got us here which means it's not our performance that keeps us here out there in the world pedigree matters status matters money matters performance matters but in here in the family of God's you leave that out. There's not, that's not something that's going to rule us or define us in here. Because it's never your performance to begin with. It's his perfect, righteous performance. And the gospel is not that we give God a good record and then he blesses us. 
The gospel is that Jesus Christ came to earth and lives the life that we should have lived and dies the death that we should have died. He becomes our substitute. He lives on our behalf and he dies on our behalf. And therefore, because of the cross, we can receive our relationship with God the Father and become his children by absolute grace, nothing else. And that means it really, 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 really does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. You are somebody by God's grace who Jesus can be proud of. He wants to show you off. He wants you in his family. And he gives you the status of someone in his family. And in Hebrews 2 it says he is not ashamed to call you his family. He's not ashamed of you. So many, live, so many Christians live with guilt and shame that we cannot rub up, that we can't get rid of them. No matter what we try and do, it's just hanging around there. It just kind of sticks to us. And we're, He is not ashamed of you. Yeah, but you don't know what I did in this situation and did in that situation. Listen, I, I say this gently and I say this in absolute love. I don't care because he's dealt with it. Yeah, but you don't know. You don't understand. You got this. I've done this and I've done... I say this in gently in love, stop talking nonsense. Because when Jesus Christ bled and died on that cross and rose again to new life, and you put your trust in him, your life became hidden in him. And so his perfect, sinless, spotless, unblemished record becomes yours. And so now when God the Father looks on you, he does not see the junk and the mess and the mistakes that you made. He sees the righteousness of Christ and he is delighted in you. (laughs) Nothing you did. (laughs) Everything he did. Yeah, but I mucked up. I've done this. I know. He knows. And he still loves you. And he still delights in you. And here's the thing. God not only loves you, he actually likes you. Like so many of us, God loves me, I know, but he just thinks I'm an idiot. No! Like I love you all, right? I do. There is a genuine, I mean, I, I, I find liking some of you a little bit harder than others. But I love you all. He likes you. I just love you. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, but all right. we could know in theologically God loves me, but this, this has separated me. No, 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 no. He is delighted in you. If you're caught in sin right now, entangled in the snares of stuff, yeah, but I'm doing this, I'm doing His desire for you is that you would repent, confess your sin, because he's faithful to purify and clean. Repentance has become a dirty word, even in our church culture. It's like, oh, no, repentance is the doorway to grace. You come and repent before a holy God, confess your sins, and he is faithful to purify. He delights in rolling up his sleeves and restoring the mess into his beautiful creation. He delights in pouring out his extravagant loving kindness and his grace towards you. From beginning to end, 
Everything is a work of grace. This whole gospel is a work of grace, which means on my best days, when I am smashing it out of the park in my personal devotional life, when I am holy and pure and wonderfully loving to everybody, when I actually like everyone and I'm really nice in everyone, hey, he doesn't love me any more than on the day when I completely fluff it, mess it up and don't do any of those things. My right standing before God has got nothing to do with my performance, only his perfect one. And that changes everything. I can't make God love me and I don't need to. God loves me because of who he is and because of what Christ has done. I'm now a son, reconciled back to God and brought into a family. You and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. You, if you're a Christian here today, are a portion of my inheritance in God and I'm a portion of yours as well. That means that we play a significant part in each other's stories. And the greater the revelation I have of this God of grace, the more fully I comprehend the scale and the scope and the breathtaking beauty and wonder of this gospel, the more I begin to value and appreciate the church for whom Jesus Christ died. And the more I begin to value the role that I play in the lives of my fellow saints, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and the absolute crucial role that they play in my life as well. You see, he's broken down all the barriers that we've put up to to do with gender and Jew and Gentile and race and good people and bad people. He's brought them all down. He's smashed them to smithereens. They're all gone. And now we're a family. We need one another. And there's not just room for one another. There's an absolute necessity of need for one another. Does that mean we're perfect? No. Does it mean we're going to make mistakes? Absolutely. Was somebody going to offend you, upset you, do something stupid towards you? Yes, they will. I can't promise many things other than the fact you're going to die and someone in church will hurt you. That's life. Because it's made up of people like this list and like you and like me. But in the glory and the wisdom of God, he has made it that you've been added to a family. So here's the thing as we finish. He's a father and we're our kids. We're his kids. How are you going to grow in this thing? What are you going to do to move forward in this thing? To be shaped by the gospel. can't do it by yourself. It's never the intention to do it by yourself. And it don't work out so well when you do. But you don't have to. So I said at the beginning where I want to land this is, what's your next step in growing in the gospel? What's your next step in growing in Christ? For some of us, it's repentance before God. And confession to some others. He's faithful to purify. He's a father who delights in his kids. For some of us, he's getting serious about the things he's put in us. Sense this. For some of us, God's put things in you, gift-wise, talent-wise, that you ain't using. He's drawing it out with you. I can't never be like that. But who cares? You're not, you're not that person. What's he calling you to? Time to step into it. And for all of us, it's in the context of community. Can't do this by yourself. There's a whole load of them in here. I mean, I'm looking at their faces, and I know that they ain't perfect. I mean, not least, because my fa- wow, that is a bad photo. We need to sort this out, brother. I look ill. No, that's what you look like. 
What's your next step going to be? For some, it's going on alpha. Because actually, you, you know that you're not really saved. Or you don't really understand. Or you've kind of joined the community and you like that kind of thing, but actually there's not a thing with Jesus where when push comes to shove, you know. You can know. What's the point of living this life? Not really being sure. Alpha's the place. For some of you, it's a, there's stuff in me that I need to grow in. And to be honest with you, I'm drying the things of God. Get on the Holy Spirit course. It ain't a magic formula. It's just a place where we're going to have an opportunity to encounter God together. Some of us, it's actually, I think I need to get involved in this church and get in and see where it, Come and do DNA. We start this week. It's in our house. It's not particularly great. It's basically six weeks of what I've just done. Me talking. But in it, something like, oh man, <laughs> unsign up. But in it, it's just the thing of, no, this is where I feel a sense of, I want to kind of find out more. It's the gifts I feel God's given me. It's time to step all of us need to be in a community somewhere. Now, if you're visiting this church, you, you go work this out for yourself in your own context. Well, I just want to encourage each of us to take a step. Can we just stand to our feet?